And there are many other things you get from chess. You learn never to give up unless you really should give up. Uh, but no one ever won by giving up. They have to be a fighter. And this is great for all of us. We have to overcome all kinds of difficulties in our world. And if you play enough chess, you become armed and, and equipped to cope with various problems. It's just a great generalizer of, of talent and problem-solving skills. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is chess instructor and author Bruce Pandolfini. You may know him as the mentor of Josh Waitskin in Searching for Bobby Fischer, but he's also probably one of the most experienced chess instructors in the world, one of the highest paid chess instructors in the world. And if you're a fan of The Queen's Gambit, he was a consultant for that series. He also is in the film. What kind of prompted me to get this episode going was hearing his voice on the other end of the phone um, during one of the episodes of the show and immediately recognizing that voice. And I think you'll see why when you hear him. Uh, Bruce is just a really beloved figure in chess. He was really instrumental to me as somebody that I sat down with many times at an Upper West Side diner to talk about his history teaching not just Josh Waitskin, but Fabiano Caruana, the number two player in the world. And I think some of the dynamics in chess are very, very similar to those in boxing. And the same goes for those who coach these people and mentor the great people. And Pandolfini offers a lot of insights about Bobby Fischer, which I am utterly fascinated by. Um, I just really love this guy. And so I hope you enjoy learning about his incredible story from working at the Strand Bookstore to being invited to commentate uh, during Fisher's heyday and it giving him a, a entry and a passport into becoming this wonderful teacher for so many people and improving and brightening their lives. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Bruce Pandolfini. Um, so I would love to hear, uh, I was just watching the Queen's Gambit and I guess on the third or fourth episode, I heard your voice on the phone and I went, I said to my girlfriend, it's Bruce Pandolfini and this show has just exploded. So maybe we can start there and then we can work backwards about your involvement with chess and all of that. Um, how did you get sure. involved in the Queen's Gambit? Well, I got first involved in the Queen's Gambit way back 38 years ago um, oh. as a consultant for Random House. I was sent a chess manuscript, a novel, by Walter Tevis, and I read it, enjoyed it very much. I really liked the uh, main character and, and other people on the book. But there were some problems with the, uh, the chess positions. Um, a few of them didn't make any sense. I as I was speaking to Walter and uh, his editor, Ann Friedgood, at Random House headquarters, I made it clear that I thought it best to change a little bit of that. She was in favor of it, um, 
but uh, Walter was not. He was a chess player, and um, he felt he knew enough chess, and it worked fine. And he was afraid if I got involved, I might uh, mess up the literary quality of the work or destroy the narrative in some way. And so we, that was going nowhere, and I was about to uh, leave, and I was saying goodbye. And for some reason, I don't know, some impulse took hold of me, and I suggested the title, a different title. And um, Anne said, wait a second, let's talk some more. And a half hour later, I had been uh, hired as the consultant to work on The Queen's Gambit. That was in the summer of 1982. So that was wow. the novel. And I, I met with Walter uh, eight to ten times in his home, I think on 30th Street and the east side in Manhattan. Um, and we went over everything very carefully, modified this and that, and I came up with a few what I thought were significant uh, changes. And uh, Walter was really a great teacher. He also helped me with my own work. And we became very friendly, and um, he gave me a nice acknowledgement in the book. But the funny thing is, when I, I read the book, he, he passed away a year after uh, that work. Um, when I read the book again, I realized he didn't use any of my suggestions, except for a few hmm. trivial things. So the only thing I really did for the book was to come up with the final title, The Queen's Gambit. <laughs> it's a good title, though. Yeah. And then it, no, nothing happened. Well, various people became interested in film people, um, both directors and stars. Um, and finally, I think Eleonora, um, Walter's widow, sold the rights to Alan Scott in... 1991, I believe. And from there, he he really tried to uh, move it along and find uh, a supportive group of people to get behind it and make a, a film of it. And nothing seemed to happen, and the years went by. Then in 2018, I got a call from Bill Horberg, who happened to be the producer of Searching for Bobby Fischer, which we had both worked on uh, in 1992. And uh, he invited me to lunch. He said, we're going to do this. We're thinking of doing this, making a film of this. Um, invited me to lunch with himself, Scott Frank, the director, uh, producer, and screenwriter, brilliant guy, and Alan Scott, who uh, well, those three are the executive producers on, on the present series. And we met there, and it was clear they were going to go ahead. And I was hired as the chess consultant to read through the script carefully, to uh, come up with a block of chess positions to reflect what's happening in the script and to train the actors. Um, right after that, world champion Gary Kasparo was brought on board. Uh, I introduced Gary to uh, the group. I think they, they wanted him to play Borgoff, by the way, who's the main Russian character in the series. Uh, I'm not sure Gary really considered it. He has no time. He did get involved as a, a consultant like me, and he did really invaluable work, by the way. <laughs> so uh, it took off from there. That was 2018. What do you make of its success? I saw it was the, the most watched program on Netflix in the United States and maybe maybe the world. Maybe I heard a rumor of that, but certainly in the United States it was consistently number one uh, for a, a game that has had... Uh, 
some difficulty post-Fisher finding an audience, why did this film resonate so profoundly with audiences, many of whom know very little about the actual chess world rather than this fictional one depicted? Right. Well, um, first of all, I'm not, I'm not certain of why, but I do think that the main character, um, um, Beth Harmon, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, is really uh, a strong, wonderful character for our time. Great persona. And Anya performs her brilliantly. She, she capturing all kinds of nuances, uh, manifesting um, resourceful intelligence. And I think people identify with that during our horrific time we're all going through uh, this pandemic. Um, and so Anya and Beth, Beth you know, the characters, truly a, a wonderful role model for our world. And it's just great. She has to overcome all kinds of problems, you know, from drugs to alcohol to strange relationships, um, growing up in an orphanage, uh, broken family, this and that. She's impacted by that, but she overcomes it all. She surmounts it. And in the end, she triumphs over all her nemeses. Uh, 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 it's just a wonderful role model. Uh, that's what we have here. I think it's a it's a character that has a a, a real life uh, sense to it. Sort of like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes exists in many people's minds, mm. uh, or James Bond, or something. It's, a, it's not just a character, and I think that's what she's given us—a a real flesh and blood person, someone that we can look up to. Maybe you could tell people who don't know, I mean, one of the aspects also is having a female go on to become the world champion. It seemed to me that there was, they referenced Paul Morphy, one of America's greatest chess, one of the world's great chess players ever. Um, but there's a lot of overlap with Bobby Fischer, it seems to me, with this girl's story. Obviously not the drug addiction, alcoholism, the orphanage, but this sort of self-made person this um, eccentric person but fiercely intelligent who rises the way she does seemed, seemed like it was drawing a lot from Fisher. I mean, um, could you speak to that, to maybe what she was based on from the chess world? Well, I'll try. I'll try. Uh, Bobby Fisher is not mentioned in the novel, and he's not mentioned in the series. Probably for several reasons it would, it would possibly detract from Beth. But there's her own an American rival, um, but also you have Benny. Benny Watts is a character who's kind of Bobby Fisher-like in the uh, novel and uh, you know, in the series, although very different too. Uh, intriguing, you know, part of the American ethos of uh, raw individualism, uh, doing it their way. Uh, I think it's just that's a great image for all of us. Yeah, that's traditional American, uh, an American approach to things. Um, of course, for, for women and girls back in the late 50s and 60s, when this takes place, it was much, it was very difficult. If you were a woman and you walked into a chess club, you'd be the only female in the chess club, and you'd be surrounded immediately by 15 or 20 men. It would be incredibly intimidating. How are you going to play chess? in that environment and people staring at you and looking at you and treating you like something not quite human. 
Um, so that's depicted in the series and in the novel. Clearly, um, Beth overcomes all of that. She triumphs. Um, now, are things better in today's world? That's a, in the world of chess, that is. I mean, certainly there's a greater uh, female presence in chess competition. Of course, you have uh, you've had Judith Polgar uh, reach the top ten players in the world. So this is a very viable possibility in our world. Back in the 50s and 60s, it seems like something that just came out of nowhere. That would, that would not be as feasible then. Um, and yeah, so it's gone through some metamorphosis, some changes, uh, evolutionary changes. And it's better for girls and women now. It's, it's still not there. They're not on a, a par, and they're not treated in the, the same deferences and um, support. So it's getting better. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could speak to two things just from when I was researching the book I was working on, the Grandmaster that jumped out at me about chess that I didn't know at the outset was pre-Bobby Fischer in the era that Beth Harmon is uh, making her journey towards the world championship. Um, there was very little money in chess. I mean, still to this day, it's, it's a sport that for all its popularity um, it's not really commiserate in the winnings for the world champions and certainly the ecosystem below, let's say, the top 30 players. It's hard to make a living in this game. Beth makes it seem like she's traveling the way the Beatles were traveling in the 1960s. She's at mm -hmm. extraordinarily luxurious hotels. She's become a fashion icon. Um, money seems almost never to be <laughs> a major problem for her. Um, and I know that, I think I'm getting this right, prior to Bobby Fischer winning the world championship in 1972 for a record-breaking sum in Reykjavik, Iceland, I believe Boris Spassky won the world championship prior for $1,200 U.S. So I wonder if we could speak to that, the 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 difficulty with making real money in chess despite several hundred million people playing the game. And then maybe we can get to sort of the history of sexism in the game that's existed in the past. Small task, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Let's see what we can do here. Um, first of all, for years, there never was much money in chess. I recall when I finished... I think it was third through seventh in the National Open or something like that, and I got $50 in Reno. Right. And I lost it all in five minutes on the table. <laughs> so imagine if that were golf or some other uh, comparable higher paying sport, tennis, you know. Um, there's never been much money in chess. You play, you play for the love of the game. But Paul Morphy, maybe the greatest player of all time, in, in the sense that, um, although he didn't, doesn't have the highest li uh, lifetime rating, he was further ahead of the number two player in the world than any other champion has been ahead of the number two player in the world during his time. Mm -hmm. um, he was turned off because he had to constantly raise stakes and play for money with the world champion, or he never got a match for the world championship. But for others at the top, he just wanted to play for the love of the game. And, and that's a whole 
it, it works against professionalism in a way. You know, if you can't play for money and earn a living by doing it, how do you devote your entire life to doing this? How are you going to get by? Yes, admittedly, Beth does get by, ultimately, in the end, although not at first. She constantly wins. Uh, it's not clear where the money is coming from. That's part of the fantasy, though. It's, mm. it's a lovable, uh, fantastic story. Uh, and I think we need that kind of thing for for this world we're in right now. Mm-hmm. That also speaks to why the, it's done so well. I mean, in, number one in America for a uh, number of weeks throughout Europe, and I think in the world. I don't have all the statistics available. Um, but certainly it just stood out and garnered so much attention, so much interest. I, I just I just noticed a lot of people reaching out to me to say, boy, she's living well. I guess chess had this golden era where you could get rich playing and that kind of thing. And I, I was saying to all these people, no. Like, I mean, Bobby Fischer was on an incredible mission to make chess a, a viable pursuit where you didn't need a second or third job. It was extraordinarily tough for everybody involved in this game. And it's one of the things that fascinates me about chess is you have hundreds of millions of people playing it. It's 1,500 years old, and it's very difficult to make a living if you're one of the top 50 in the world doing it. And I can't think of many other things that exist with that kind of popularity and longevity that are not really financially lucrative. I can't think of a parallel really offhand. I used to hate to go to family gatherings because they likened what I did as a a chess teacher, something lower than being a poet or a philosopher in a financial sense. Right. Yeah, folk so it's hard art. Not my life all the time. And, you know what? What are you doing? At you mean? You make any money at that? Well, okay. So the other the other question I had is related to I think one of the things that for me made it so compelling and fascinating was having a female protagonist in this story in such a male dominated sport, which is not unlike um, I hear. The wine industry is all men. Finance is men. Journalism is men. Um, you know, but every now and again, when you take a very male-dominated field and you fictionalize it, think uh, Silence of the Lambs, putting Jodie Foster at the center of that mm. story, or Sigourney mm. Weaver in science fiction, put her in space in Alien. It yeah, just becomes this it, this transcendently fascinating scenario to see how it is and I mean I wonder would this story be anywhere near as popular if it was a man at the center of it I doubt it I'd have to agree with you I don't think it would would be as as interesting or as popular Um, best manifest and and really is brilliant manifest deep intelligence and that's something that we need to identify with to get us through these we need resilience and resourcefulness and creativity to get through the horror of what we're going through. And this character puts it all out there. And by the way, in real life, the one reason Anya is able to do that is that she really is very, very intelligent. Mm. Uh, she's such a quick study. She picked up everything right away. Um, very gifted individual. And uh, that's why she was able to portray this character so, so wonderfully. Well, so why don't we you, – you made the comparison 
completely rightly to Judith Polgar, the Hungarian greatest female player who ever played. I believe she got to seventh in the world regardless of gender at one point. Um, Mm -hmm. I want you to help people understand how endemic sexism was in the game of chess. And I think there is a bit of irony. We're talking about Gary Kasparov being the other consultant on this series. Gary Mm -hmm. himself is not somebody who hasn't put his foot in his mouth with some comments about women historically, specifically Judith Polgar, but so have a lot of grandmasters. It's been a very inhospitable world to women for a long time. Is that fair to say? Very fair to say. Although, in fairness to Gary, I think his uh, thinking on him has evolved over time. Yes, absolutely. He's admitted admitted that he was maybe a bit youthful in his comments comments uh, about her then. Um, look, if you look at Bobby Fisher, he said many ridiculous things in, during his teenage years about uh, females. Yeah. How he could give yeah. them the best one player in the world night odds, which is a handicap, uh, uh, a, a, lo- a losing handicap to start a chess game against anyone who's a decent player. Uh, and he said other things. But I think because he was a teenager, he came under influences that uh, really um, marked him in terrible ways. I think at the end of his, uh, well, as he got to be world champion, I think he started to feel a little differently. But it's out there. There's a lot of sexism out there. And it's still, and it remains. It, it hasn't been eradicated. We have much to do yet. Has it improved? Yes, un- unquestionably it's improved. And role models uh, and exemplars like uh, Judith Polgar. Judith Polgar, um, and her sister Susan Polgar, Zsuzsa Polgar. Uh, you have the three Polgar sisters. They were all incredibly and are incredibly adept players. And now, they you, would. Tr- yeah, I'm sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, could you speak to their story for people who aren't familiar with the Polgar sisters? Um, just in the sense that their father, who was a psychologist, may have been a psychiatrist. I think he was a psychologist. Um, almost wanted to do a controlled experiment with his daughters to prove that you could create geniuses um, and used his daughters in the world of chess, which was so renowned for being male-dominated, to prove his theory even more so, to emphasize it. by and, and it seems like he succeeded wildly with all three of his daughters becoming exemplary players, but Judith certainly standing out. Could you maybe just go through like a summary of the Polgar sisters and Judith's ascension into the world of chess? It sounds like a a Michael Powell screenplay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Let's see. They're from Hungary, the three sisters, and they were trained from early on by their father, who was a great chess coach. Um, I remember when he came to the States, uh, back in the, I think it was either the uh, late 80s or early 90s, I met with uh, him and his daughter. Uh, and we went to Simon Schuster and introduced him to the company. And he brought 200 different chess book ideas to them. 200. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way a publisher will know what to do if he presents them with 200 different book ideas. Which one? <laughs> He's so methodical. I think he's instilled a lot of that uh, uh, love for 
detail and careful study of chess positions into his daughters, except this. They are intuitive plays, especially Judith, which mm. runs counter to being methodical. She feels ideas. And that, by the way, Beth does that. Mm. She, you know, Beth Harmon, she just senses what's right and, and zeroes in on it. And that's what good players do, by the way. You know, the problem with most people when they look at chess and it becomes so hard for them is they try to consider everything. And it doesn't work. When you consider everything, it's like considering nothing. You have to somehow eliminate 99% of the possibilities pretty quickly and zero in on just the, that and devote those three or four ideas and devote all your attention and energy to analyzing that. You have a chance of considering three or four moves reasonably, especially if you have a developed skill set. Uh, but you can't consider everything. And so it's the intuitive player, especially, who will shine in that regard, who kind of just target the right ideas pretty quickly and then find a way to analyze which one works best. And that's what good chess players try to do. They try to narrow down their thinking and devote their attention to fewer possibilities. And that's why they can see more, because they're actually focusing on less. Interesting. Um, I mean, the other, I think... Next most successful film, at least in reading, reaching casual fans of the sport, you were a character played by Gandhi, as it were, uh, in terms of Sir Ben Kingsley, um, was searching for Bobby Fischer. And this was a film that I don't think was as financially successful as The Queen's Gambit has proved to be, where it's this juggernaut. But it was very, very popular, very beloved film. And it speaks to your relationship with the young prodigy, Josh Waitskin, and with his father, Fred Waitskin, um, you dealing with kind of a next Bobby Fischer, which became a genre of player in the chess world after Fischer, quote-unquote, disappeared. Um, maybe you could talk about the differences between the Queen Gambit experience and what it was like when Searching for Bobby Fischer came out in 1993. Um, I'll try. I'll try. First of all, uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, which was directed and um, the screenplay was written by the brilliant Steve Zalian, who, by the way, won the Oscar that year for Schindler's List. He wrote the screen, the, uh, the uh, uh, screenplay for that. And uh, so he had a tremendous year. But Searching for Bobby Fischer starts with Fred Waitzkin's genius book, you know, which arguably is the best book ever written on chess, I mean, for the general mm -hmm. reader. This draws you right in. Fred is a fantastic writer, you know, a real artist. And um, he captures the chess world, and especially the, the world of scholastic chess, junior chess. Oh, wonderfully, all kinds of... Uh, uh, nuances and intangibles he picks up. He shows what it was really like. Um, but he raises various questions that are important. You know, you have to be, are you living your life through your child? Uh, Fred delves into that. I think you should read the book to find the answer. But that, anyhow, from that book, it was uh, it inspired Paramount and uh, he's alien do a screenplay and make a, a, a film. Uh, so that 
I was very much part of that experience because I was Josh's coach uh, for a number of years. Um, and I, I became a member of their family. I would go there so often. Uh, I feel very close to them still to this day. Um, the Queen's Gambit is very different, although I was part of the early experience with it, uh, going back to 1982. And although I was friendly with Walter Tevis, I was not a very close friend of Walter Tevis. Uh, and the same thing is true here. Except I, I do have a good friend who carries it over in both projects. It's interesting. And that's Bill Holberg, the producer, mm -hmm. who's uh, has many, many talents, he, which is why he, he, he has been such a wonderful producer. He can bring everything together. He has great overview, wonderful insights and perspectives on things. And he's a motivator, too. He, 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 he knows how to get the most out of people. A really great guy, a really great producer. Um, and so that goes into some aspect of the success of the Queen's Gambit. Um, I think I think both artists, as far as producing the, the, and directing these works, uh, for the Queen's Gambit, Scott Frank, and for uh, Searching for Bobby Fisher, Steve Zalian, they are artists, and they want to get everything right. They want to make an entertaining experience, but they want to make sure the nuts and bolts are there. And I think that they really tried to do that. And um, so that may unite them. That brings them together. Their works by aesthetic geniuses trying to get everything right and, and managing to do it. What, why do you um, – what do you make of – so what was your feeling about being depicted in a film where you have this lived experience with this family where you are, as you, you say, an extension of their family? Um, Josh is a clear runaway prodigy almost from the beginning. I mean, five years old, six years old, he's identified. You're brought in to help. Um, what is it like to see that be fictionalized? What is it like to see... Um, you know, Bobby Fisher is in that it is not a warts and all portrayal of Bobby Fisher as somebody that they're aspiring for this kid to become. It's sort of the glorified version of Bobby Fisher, the aspirational version of his greatness. But there's nothing about the, the darker stuff to do with him, the anti-Semitism and his troubles and possible mental illness and that kind of thing. Uh, was it strange? And, and also... You, as far as I know, are not secretly hiding an Irish brogue right now as we're talking, as Ben Kingsley has when he's portraying you. Um, what is it like to, to have your life and this important uh, period of time in your life and career be fictionalized? Okay, that's a good point. Well, first of all, we must make, distinguish searching for Bobby Fisher is largely real. The, bo the book is real, 100% real. Real mm -hmm. Fred's account uh, is slightly uh, Hollywoodized to make a more entertaining uh, film, but the yeah, facts yeah. are still essentially the same. Um, whereas the Queen's Gambit is, is a fictional, totally fictional narrative. Um, yeah, it was it was strange. The little changes. Uh, I mean, Ben Kingsley, I believe, when he read the uh, script saw me as um, 
a kind of character out of uh, Samuel Beckett, Malloy or Malone. And that's why he played it that way. And then he, he met me and he realized I was a guy from Brooklyn. <laughs> With a Brooklyn accent and all that, that entails. Uh, I still think he did, did a marvelous job. And it was, it was kind of, it shook me a little bit. But I'm a professional. I want to do a job and I want to get things right and do things that correspond to the script, especially when it's a wonderful script. It's based on a wonderful book. Well, well, well. I mean, in it though, I mean, if we're getting into the granular level, it was interesting that I know. a little behind the story, you have the buildup of Josh Waitzkin on his way to winning a championship for his age group, and there is a a fictional character, Jonathan Poe, that he's playing against. But there was a real person that that was based on, Jeff Sarwer, who you actually trained as well as Wade Squat. Well, yeah, I, I did give them advice. I was manager of the, uh, the director of the Manhattan Chess Club. And uh, Jeff Sorrell was a very, very talented uh, individual. Uh, he, won, he wound up winning the World Scholastic Under-10 Championship right after the uh, search of the Bobby Fischer period. He was not, as, uh, he was not the uh, kid in the film role entirely. Yeah. Um, a lot of his problems are based on his, his father. He's really a very good kid. He's grown up to be a healthy uh, uh, young man. I mean, he's a good guy. So he, yeah. he escaped all of those early troubles in the way Beth does. Right. In the Queen's Chamber, he overcome, overcame all of that. Um, I want to address one thing. Mm-hmm. Surgeon for Bobby Fisher is not really about searching for the next Bobby Fischer so much, even though that's how it's uh, usually uh, analyzed. It's really about finding, again, the wonderful times that ensued upon Fischer's success in 1972, because that's when chess changed so much. People started loving chess and turning to it, and people would play it in bars and watch the coverage in the World Championship match in PBS, uh, sitting there with their, uh, their wine and their, their scotch bourbon, whatever. Um, and so it's trying to get back to those that, that period where chess was important for a couple of years. Now, after Fisher withdrew, chess became less important again and fell back to its former status. So that's what I think that the, the metaphor is here, trying to recapture that period where chess was on a high, more so than trying to find the actual next body, searching for the next body Fisher. I, I think you're right. I guess it's just that for – I remember watching it as a kid. I think I was 13 or 14. And the moment Josh is in the park of Washington Square Park where I know that park because of Bobby Fischer, like <laughs> the first place I wanted to go when I first visited New York City is to hear the the hustlers whisper to one another, the next Fisher, another Fisher. You start tingling. Right with right. Well, where is Bobby? Where did he go? What's happened? Why has he disappeared? Because you know the other great American icon artist who disappeared is J.D. Salinger, and I know he's somewhere writing book after book after book that he has no intention of publishing. So there was this incredible mystique with Fisher, and I wonder for people where 
the events of Fisher uh, predate their existence, if you could let people know what it was like in 1972 where Fisher is almost a bigger deal on the cover of the New York Times during the World Championship than Watergate or then the Vietnam War, which is claiming tens of thousands of American lives. How did this happen with a chess player? Well, it was very exciting because he, he challenged the system, the Soviet chess hierarchy. Uh, it was, he seemed to be alone, and he was. It was Bobby Fischer against the Soviet uh, uh, entourage of many professionals and a whole structured system to support its top players. Um, it was very difficult for Bobby Fischer to find uh, support uh, monetary backing, um, other professionals who would work with him and help him. Besides, he preferred doing things on his own anyway. Um, so it was front page news. It was on the Times, in, in the front page of the Times every day, New York Times. It was on the major magazine covers. He had Life magazine, Time magazine, Newsweek. They all had pictures of Fisher and, and, uh, and cover stories. And it was very engaging. Fisher appeared on, you know, with Bob Hope and uh, on other television shows. I think Dick Cavett did a wonderful interview, or even several with him. Um, and so he was all over the place. He was a star. He was a star beyond the chessboard, which uh, really registered with the American public and the world public, too. Now, a lot of Fisher's negatives were not coming out at that time. His anti-Americanism, his uh, anti-Semitism, his sexism, all of that was in the public eye so much. He was focused on beating Boris Spassky and toppling the Soviets, and that was big news then. Um, I recall how I got involved. I was working at the Strand Bookstore in New York, uh, behind the counter. I was at the register, and this man brought about... 10 books to the counter and placed them on it to buy them. Uh, and they were chess books. And we got into a conversation. And um, that lasted five or six minutes. But there were others online. And we left. A number of days later, I got a call, and it was from him. He was the chief producer at Channel 13 in New York. And he wanted to know if I would be interested in being an analyst covering the World Championship match from Reykjavik. And I said, what? That's how I got involved in, in, back in chess. I dropped out of chess. Uh, I ultimately became a, a chess teacher from that exposure and that involvement. Uh, well, and, not, and, not just a, and not just a chess teacher, Bruce, but maybe the most recognized chess teacher in the world. <laughs> like, it's a little more than I just became a chess teacher on the side, isn't it? Uh, well, at that point, I wanted to be a poet. Uh, I would have been a very bad poet. I didn't realize that. <laughs> so it was easy to abandon that profession. Uh, but that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be some kind of writer. I guess I've written a number of chess books through the years. Uh, through the years. I don't exactly consider them the same as, you know, Nabokov or something. <laughs> They're chess books. I try to do my best. I try to be clear and helpful. How many have you written now in total? Is it? It's in the twenties, isn't it? No, it's. I think it's more than. I think it's 
north of 35, but I'm not even okay. sure. You lose count after a while. Huh. So this this for you, I mean, this sounds like a movie. You're working at a bookstore, but your entire life is transformed by just this random meeting, isn't it? Yes, totally by luck, by chance. A five-minute conversation gets me re-involved in the world of chess. I had kind of removed myself from it after that experience at the Nationals where I won $50 and said to myself, oh, how am I going to survive doing this? Right. Uh, and I didn't have the same passion for um, playing chess that Bobby Fischer and uh, the great Gary Kasparov and Magnus Carlsen have. Uh, nor am I, am I as talented. Those guys are amazing. They're geniuses, all of them. Um, so I couldn't have made a living from playing chess. I would have gotten better, but I, it would have been a, an ultimate limit on what I could have reached. But I did find my niche, I guess, uh, and that is helping youngsters uh, – experience the game and uh, to derive some kind of benefit from it. And I've gotten so much pleasure from that. Along with much sadness at points, but the uh, pleasure is well over ridden all the uh, pain. It's been a, a wonderful life. I'm so happy I, I, I got into doing this. Maybe I can do it for another 50 years. I'm, it's almost 50 years now. I think I'm wow. starting my 49th year soon. How many kids do you think that you've worked with over the course of those 49 years? Yeah, I, I used to painstakingly keep diaries where every single <laughs> lesson I would enter like a shrink or a therapist, some analysis of the session, uh, what I, I felt I needed to do. And I have thousands of entries going back to 72, many of them stored in my storages. I think I have five storages around the city. Uh, and... Um, Someday I said, I'm going to go through this and maybe do something and put a book out there. But then I think, well, you know, that's a lot of this private stuff. You get right into the heads of, of youngsters. Um, should I write about that? Should I not mention their names to protect the innocent, innocence of them? Uh, but I have such stuff. I've, I've tried to teach, uh, approach it as a scientist would. And I'm not sure that any other teacher has done that, kept such careful notes. Now, I haven't been as good in recent years. I still do it, but I probably miss some lessons and don't get down the facts as I would like to. Uh, well, can you can you walk me through what it's like to work with an ordinary kid? Some some parents want their kid to learn chess. It's a positive thing for them to pick up, and you're hired on to do that. What is it like, like the kind of normal person that's not going to pursue a life in chess that you're working with them, but you're trying to get them interested in it and, and many of the skills that chess offers kids as learning tools that they can apply elsewhere versus what it would be like for you to work with uh, one of the top three chess players in the world right now, Fabiano Caruana, that you got as a kid and, and worked with where this guy has the potential to be a world champion. What are those two scenarios like for you as a teacher and mentor to guide these kids? Well, there, there are very few uh, students like um, Fabiano and Josh, you know, enormous talents. Uh, they don't even need me or, or anyone like me. They will do it on their own. Hmm. Somehow they find a way and, and would achieve because they love chess. And they would play it and play it, and you would 
master it over time. So, I mean, I can help. I can do lots of things, but they, ultimately they would not need me. They would succeed anyway. Now, the overwhelming majority of students, though, don't have those ta the talents that uh, Josh and Fabiano and others have. Um, I still think chess has great value for them. And, um, you know, in the old Soviet Union days, they would try to find the most talented players and devote all kinds of attention to them and neglect to some extent those who weren't talented. In America, though, we have to be um, fairer and, and more uh, balanced on this. We try to help everyone. And that requires more of a, 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 a teacher to help those without these talents. But it's not hard because chess is so many uh, attractive things about it. And it does have a great value. You learn this pretty quickly because chess players solve problems. That is what they're playing. And they do a number of different tasks and um, rely on various methods to determine what the next move should be. Um, for example, they'll be looking at a chess player will be looking at a position and try to classify and say, what kind of position is this? I have this. Hmm, can I think of an example? that relates to this. Now, they may not be articulating it in words exactly, but their brains are doing this anyway, in some way. Uh, oh, yeah, it's kind of like that. Wait, didn't she win that position? Yeah. How can I make this like that? So it requires a great memory, but it's a working memory. It's very different from how people, most people view just remembering things. It's some kind of, some kind of memory trick. They're trying to take an idea and transform it. Uh, so chess players are always looking for analogies. Chess players are always asking intelligent questions to narrow down their search so they can devote their energies to do less to achieve more. Um, chess players are learning other tricks about how to analyze problems. For example, you'll, in many cases, you'll we will get the right idea to a sequence of moves, but in the wrong order. And what we tend to do naturally, I'm thinking about the human species, is to um, dismiss an idea because it doesn't work immediately. But what we learn from chess is if you take the same ideas and flip the move order, very often you have the right idea. Your brain has led you to the right point. You just didn't get the proper sequence. But chess shows us that by changing the move order which is an element of creativity, uh, you may find uh, the answer. And there are many other things you get from chess. You learn never to give up unless, unless you really should give up. Uh, but no one ever won by giving up. They have to be a fighter. And this is great for all of us. We have to overcome all kinds of difficulties in our world. And if you play enough chess, you become armed and, and equipped to cope with various problems. It's just a great generalizer of, of talent and problem-solving skills. And so if you do enough of that, you know, chess, the U.S. Chess Federation used to say as a motto that uh, chess makes you smart. Uh, it may be a bit strong, but <laughs> it makes you smart. <clears throat> but I agree with the spirit of it. If you do enough chess, you get lots of practice at doing things that smart people do, and that should help you in life. 
smarter might be a nicer way to put it. Yeah, but it's not as, you know, cogent. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you, when when you would, let's say, how old was Fabiano when you first saw him, first met him? I was five years, he was five years old. I was five years old mentally, no. He was <laughs> Well, you get to so, my age, you mix up, uh, you know, individuals. Uh, so how, you, long, I'm sorry. How, how long would it take you meeting a five-year-old Fabiano, and let's say you watch him play a few games of chess, how long would it take you to recognize that this guy is extraordinary? How conspicuous is that kind of talent on the chessboard with a prodigy? To me, almost immediately, I, I would I would pick up on it. Uh, within certainly a couple of minutes at most. You you can, most yeah, here's why. Most uh, kids... Uh, regardless of intelligence and uh, even experience somewhat, will tend to stare at a certain area of the board. A very talented individual will show a lot of eye movement. An eye movement reflects thinking. And that means a number of ideas are going on at one time. And if you see a lot of focused eye movement and you pick us up right away, uh, you realize this kid has a promise. Uh, that's why, by the way, good players try to hide their eyes, even though the eye movement is extremely uh, speedy at the higher levels. It will be picked up and perceived by the other player, <laughs> and something will, will register, and uh, you'll be giving away your plans to some extent. So if I see that in a kid, uh, that, there's that focused eye movement, that's a good sign. Also, if I see a certain determination at the board, that means something to me. Um, I also like kids who don't want to give up. You know, who train that if you have a totally losing game, you should give up. Well, I don't train my students to do that. Uh, you, you should never tell your students to give up because they have to learn how to win. In order to learn how to win, you have to lose a lot of games. You have to be shown why this is no good, what you're doing, by the other player. That takes place over time. A teacher can expedite it, of course. Um, but you you got to be resourceful as a chess player. And so, therefore, you, you're not going to develop that ability to uh, fight back if you don't try to fight back again and again and again. Uh, and so you'll get a talented player. Where you'll, you'll say, well, you, you just lost. He says, no, I want to play some more. I want to keep going. And by the way, in, in um, the Queen's Gambit, that's what the young Beth, Isla Johnston, does. Who's brilliant, by the way. She, does, she really is a prodigy. Which is why she she's not a, a, she's not prodigious at chess, but at general intelligence, and she just exhibits uh, real uh, intellect pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. She she brings that out. You know, she doesn't want she doesn't want to resign early on with uh, Mr. Scheibel, the janitor who teaches her. Um, is there is there something with chess? There's a lot of famous cases of chess, the pressure that's involved when these guys take it really seriously. Um, and certainly being up close at the, where I met you at the world chess championships in 2016, the pressure is enormous on these guys watching Magnus Carlsen compete at the highest level. You would literally watch his face age 10 years from the morning to the late afternoon playing and, 
being around a lot of other players, the focus and the concentration and the emotional stakes that these guys assign to the verdict of the board. Um, there are some famous cases, Fisher, of course, but I mean Paul Morphy, of guys where it was too much for them. It was just too much for them to to be involved in the game at that level, to devote their life to it. What do you what do you make of that? That there are people. I mean, even Josh Waitzkin, who you worked with, um, like Fisher in a way. I mean, in di- totally different circumstances, um, needed to leave the chess world, needed to leave the game, leave the pressures of that. Felt real pressure with his dad. Um, what is that like to be the coach of these kids and know that it might be too much for them? And why is chess too much for them? I don't, I haven't heard of a lot of cases of monopoly or, you know, a number of other games that are not physical where people, um, can really be pushed to an edge. Yeah. Well, chess will do that to you. Um, I've heard of cases after a five-hour game where a person starting at around 250 pounds or more will lose 10 or 15 pounds during that game, just the nervous energy. Wow. And that's, it's incredible if you think about it. It's like, do football players do that? Well, they're usually a lot of muscle. But uh, it, it, the tension, you can see it. You can see the, the legs moving very quickly. In, in one scene in the Queen's Gambit, you have uh, Beth doing that in a game against Gira. She's repeatedly moving her leg very quickly. And that's normal, though, to release the physical energy, although she, she's doing it possibly for another reason. It's unclear. But uh, you have to have an outlet for these uh, these energies, and that's why you'll see big-time chess players doing things uh, in sports, physical sports, playing tennis, uh, bowling, uh, running, whatever to keep the body in shape. That's important. If your body's not in shape, it is going to hinder your mental performance. There may be one or two cases where that doesn't seem to be true, but overwhelmingly uh, it will hurt you if you're not in top physical um, uh, shape. So uh, chess players are always concerned with that. Now, not everyone finds the proper outlet to release these tensions. So in the case of Paul Morphy, um, he had ended very sadly. I think he died at 47. But he essentially gave up the um, the game at the age of 22, maybe, or so. Um, again, he was the great American player, maybe the best player of all time. Uh, novels have been written about him, all kinds of stories. Uh, and books have been written analyzing his uh, psychological makeup. He does seem to have had some kind of insane strain within him. Uh, but he, I don't think he was diagnosed at the time, certainly. Uh, and uh, who can say? Um, Bobby Fischer certainly had problems, uh, especially once he started to withdraw and become a, a total loner. Um, who could explain that? He just couldn't cope with the real world and the pressures of success, I, I believe. And by the way, I, I'm not so sure as is readily believed that Fisher was as anti-Semitic as people think. I think he was re- it was really a matter of self-hatred because Fisher was Jewish. So it's so hard for people to understand this. He disliked himself so much that it came out that way. 
so surely it's anti-Semitism, but the source is a little different from what you might expect. He hated himself, um, even though he, he said things otherwise. It made it seem like he had tremendous ego. Outwardly, he did. Inwardly, he didn't. Did you did you meet Fisher? Did you spend any time with him at any point? Oh, sure, sure. I analyzed once. I analyzed Fisher for three hours. It was, and I spoke to him. I don't know. 15 or 20 times on other occasions. Now, while I was friendly with him, I was not a friend. I have to laugh when people say, oh, yeah, Bobby Fisher was one of my friends. He had very few friends, and I certainly wasn't a friend. Uh, I knew two or three of his friends, his so-called friends. It was hard to be a friend of Bobby Fisher. Um, very difficult. Uh, well, I, I, remember, I remember Harry Benson, Life Magazine's photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, I went up to his apartment and he, what drew me to him was he's photographed, I think, 12 American presidents, um, everybody. I mean, he, came, he literally was on the plane with the Beatles when they were coming over and just photographed all of the kind of cultural heavyweights since, since then. And he singled out Fisher as the most interesting person I've ever met in my life and the most interesting person I've ever photographed. And... Particularly interestingly, Benson knows nothing about chess, has no attraction to the game whatsoever. And I wonder, as somebody who knew Fisher a little bit, spent some time with him, do do you kind of agree with that assessment that he was just like, what was his charisma like that somebody like Harry Benson, who would meet some of the most charismatic people that America has produced, um, over the last 60, 70 years. Um, like, do you come to a similar opinion about Fisher, that he was just extraordinarily uh, as a person? Well, the, the last – every world champion is a genius yeah. and has, has yeah. many, many talents and stands out. There's no way he could reach the top otherwise. It's not possible. You can't just have a particular talent for chess. It, it won't get you there. You need much more. Uh, and you can see this evinced in uh, Gary Kasparov. Uh, he has so many talents. He's so widely and deeply intelligent on so many different subjects, and you, see, you feel it right away in his presence. I have to say this. Um, when you love something, as I did chess, and you could be in the presence of the leading exponent of that discipline, as Bobby Fischer was then, you don't, you're not objective. You're just very, very happy to be next to him and you excuse all kinds of things. And that would be true for ballet people, or uh, uh, if you could be next to Sandy Koufax during his time, or whatever, LeBron James. If you could be around these people and you're in that area, uh, you're happy and you're not, you're not going to be critical. You're just overjoyed to be there. So I, I really wasn't objective around Fisher the times I was around him uh, or near him. Um, I just looked up to him so, uh, because he's, he was the great Bobby Fischer. Uh, nowadays, I mean, if I'm next to Gary Kasparov or talking to him, I mean, I feel largely the same way, except now I'm an adult and I have to pretend to have some semblance of normality about, normality about me uh, and balance. But I'm still a chess player at heart, and to be next to the, the, uh, the, uh, the person at the top of the pantheon, and that endeavor is everything to an aficionado 
of anything, especially chess. So, do you think um, that? Do you yeah, think that Gary? I, I apologize to interrupt. I was just going to say, do you yeah. think Gary Kasparov is going to be willing to talk to you further after you said that Morphe might be the greatest player of all time? <laughs> I didn't say that Morphe was the greatest player, <laughs> depending what your index is. Uh, no, it, it, a very strong argument is easily made for Gary Kasparov being the greatest chess player of all time. Magnus Paulson has a slightly higher rating, numerical rating, but there are so many other factors that go into it. I mean, it's hard to find someone comparable to Gary Kasparov. It's hard to find someone comparable to Bobby Fischer. They're, they're very different. Both, all three men, Paulson, Kasparov, and Fisher, are geniuses. I think Gary Kasparov, I think you can check this out is either on Alexa or something, has the highest IQ of all time. I'm not sure how that would determine. It's hmm. an astronomical number. Um, also, you, you can't test people like Mozart and John Stuart Mill and other gifted people like that. But you see, he has such wide uh, uh, abilities and talents. Uh, it would be very reasonable to say Gary Gaspar was the greatest player of all time. And it's great that he's aligned with the Queen's Gambit. He contributed so much to it, um, besides creating some of the uh, this, this very special positions. He gave wonderful input to uh, Scott Frank on what chess was like in Russia during the 60s, especially what tournaments are like. He just had so much, the cachet of Gary Kasparov is, you know, there's only one Gary Kasparov, and we were lucky to get him. My uh, my last question, Bruce, is what is the Queen's Gambit going to do for the game of chess moving forward? Is this Has this launched uh, hundreds of thousands of girls that are going to get involved with the game that wouldn't have otherwise? Is there going to be another kind of Fisher boom as a result of... Uh, how compelling a character Beth Harmon is in this in this series? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but unlike the Fisher boom, I think there's a greater reality to this because I think it's um, you will see many many girls and women turning to the game uh, and becoming good at it and attracting others to the game. And but it won't be just female. You'll get many boys and men drawn, drawn to the game because of the series too. And I've already seen that. Everyone is interested in this series. How could you yeah. not be? It's a, it's a enveloping, encompassing drama that it's you know I, I worked on it, and when you work on something, it's hard to see it for pleasure. I've seen it for pleasure now a couple of times, and each time I'm I'm so enthralled by it. Um, what a great job, uh, Scott Frank and Anya Taylor Joy have, have done, and everyone involved, you know. Filmmaking, series making, television making, it's such a group effort, the art form. Everyone doing this small or large part to make it work. Um, and I think in this case, it's all come together and you, you have this wonderful uh, work of art. And I'm glad people are enjoying it so. Okay, I may watch it again now that I've said such nice things about it. <laughs> thank you thank you so much for your time today Bruce I know how busy you are but um, you're one of my absolute favorite people that I met in spending two years on a book about chess it was such a privilege to meet you so thank you for your time today thank you Rick. great pleasure please be well thank you. you too 
You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.